Hello everybody, this is Dan Trotter, Pretty Good Bible Studies. I am now going to take up John chapter 16 and go through the first 16 verses of that chapter. We are on the, or Jesus and his disciples are on the way from the Last Supper, on their way to the Garden of Gethsemane, which was early in the early morning hours of Friday morning, of Good Friday, the day that Jesus was executed. Now our context is the same discourse on that road to Gethsemane because John began that in John chapter 15, the whole chapter, verses 1 through 27, concerned Jesus talking on the road to Gethsemane. Now in chapter 15, on the way to Gethsemane, Jesus has already told his, had given his disciples the parable of the vine. Jesus says, I am the true vine. And he said, I want you to be a branch in my vine. I want you to bear fruit. And those who are not are going who are branches who are not in the vine will be burnt. We talked about that. And then Jesus tells the disciples that it, they need to expect the hatred of the world because they hated Jesus. Therefore, they're going to hate you. I'm choosing you out of the world. And therefore, they don't like that. And they're going to persecute you. And then Jesus, at the end of chapter 15, mentions the fact that he's going to send the Holy Spirit to them, the Spirit of truth, to bear witness about Jesus. So that's where we are. So start in verses 1 and 2 in John 16, Jesus continues, I have told you these things to keep you from stumbling. They will ban you from the synagogues. In fact, a time is coming when anyone who kills you will think he is offering service to God. Jesus says, I have told you these things to keep you from stumbling. What things? He's referring to chapter 15, which, which I just gave you a, of which I just gave you an abbreviated summary. John chapter 15, verse 18, is labeled in the NIV with this caption, The world hates the disciples. So that's why Jesus is telling them these things. He's, he's telling them, look, the world's going to hate you, so just get ready for it, so don't stumble when it comes on you. Here's some example passages in John 15, starting with verse 18. If the world hates you, understand that it hated me before it hated you. Verse 20 in John 15, Remember the word I spoke to you, a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. John 15:26 also gives another thing that Jesus had talked about in John 15, the things that will keep them from stumbling. He's going to send the Holy Spirit. John 15:26. when the counselor comes, the one I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will testify about me. All right, so let's break it down here. Jesus is saying, I'm giving you, I've told you two things to keep you from stumbling. One, you're going to get persecuted, and two, the Holy Spirit's going to help you when you get persecuted. Now, in verse 2, he mentions a specific form of persecution that they will receive. They will ban you, that means they, the Jewish leaders, the unbelieving Jewish leaders who killed Jesus and who killed all the prophets from the whole history of Israel, they will ban you from the synagogues. Now, I don't know about you, but to me, I think that would be an honor to be banned from those synagogues. All they teach is unbelief and hatred of Jesus. Well, why is, was, did Jesus consider this a bad thing to happen to the disciples if it happened? Or when it happened? Why? Well, because banning was considered a terrible punishment. The synagogue was the center of Jewish community life. This is from the NIV Study Bible. And one excommunicated, an excommunicated person will be cut off from many social relationships. Now, they might not have been cut off from worship. It, uh, it, sometimes it was, depending on the form of excommunication. There were moderate forms and severe forms, at least in later times. But you could at least be, at the, at the, at the worst, excuse me, at the best, you would be cut off from your friends. Couldn't, they wouldn't speak to you. Well, social ostracism is a terrible thing. 
And Jesus is saying, get ready for it, guys. It's going to happen to it, to you. You believe in me, you're going to be socially ostracized. Excommunication in Israel was reported as early as the time of Ezra. In Ezra 10.8, we read, Whoever did not come within three days would forfeit all his possessions, set apart all his possessions for destruction according to the decision of the leaders and elders, and would be excluded from the assembly of the exiles. Excluded from the assembly of the exiles. But practically no information of how it was practiced in New Testament times has come down to us. John Gill says there were two forms of excommunication. There was the mild form called the nidui. I hope I'm pronouncing that right. Excommunication for up to 90 days. That's the mild form. The severe form, the cherem, you were cut off from the whole body of the Jewish people. And I mean, that was it, buddy. That's, that's bad. That's probably what Jesus was referring to here. John Gill says this struck great terror in the minds of the people. Reminds me in the Middle Ages when the Catholic Church would put a whole community under the ban and everybody says, oh, we can't take the transubstantiated Lord's Supper and we're going to die and we're going to go to hell. We don't have the grace of Jesus scared everybody out of their minds, which is nonsense, by the way. Now, here's some example of examples of being banned from the synagogue that's mentioned, incidentally, in the scriptures. Here's the case of the man born blind who was healed at the pool of Siloam. This is earlier in John, John chapter 9. His parents said these things, and the things they said was they were, they were putting the Jews off. They were, the Jews were trying to figure out how the man born blind had become blind, and the parents said, hey, go ask Jesus, don't ask us. They were said these things because they were afraid of the Jews, since the Jews had already agreed that if anyone confessed him as Messiah, he would be banned from the synagogue. So there you see the Jews had already made a policy. You believe in Jesus, out of the synagogue you go. There's not going to be any looking at Jesus as a sect of Judaism, just a, 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 a party in Judaism like the Pharisees and the Sadducees, You're not going to, or the Essenes. You're not going to do that. You, you, you get kicked out. Here's another example of... The, a mention of banning from the synagogue in John 12:42. This is right after the triumphal entry on Palm Sunday, the week before Jesus, the Sunday before Jesus was killed. Nevertheless, many did believe in him, even among the rulers. That means the rulers, the Jewish rulers. He, Jesus he ma and even managed to convert some of them. But because of the Pharisees, they did not confess him, so they would not be banned from the synagogue. And of course, you wonder what. Well, how deep did their belief go, or were they compromising their belief? I'm not going to go into that. Maybe they were just being strategic. I don't know. But at any rate, banning from the synagogue was a bad thing, and Jesus warned them about it. They will ban you from the synagogues. And he gives them a second warning. He says, not only are they going to do that, he says this in, in verse 2, In fact, a time is coming when anyone who kills you will think he is offering service to God. Well, now, being banned from the synagogue is bad enough, but dying? Now, that's really bad. The NIV Study Bible notes here that there's has been lots of persecution in world history done by people with sincere motives. And that really is true. A good example of that is Paul. Let's look at how he thought he was doing God's work by killing, by persecuting Christians. Just as Jesus predicted, many think that they will be offering service to God if anyone kills you. This is what Paul's doing. And Paul did manage to get people killed. I, I don't have the verse. I have the hard, hardest time finding that verse in Acts. But he did do it. He, he was judicial murder. He turned Christians over to courts so that they could be executed. Acts 26, 9 through 11. This is Paul speaking. In, he's speaking to a Roman official. In fact, I myself supposed it was necessary to do many things in opposition to the name of Jesus the Nazarene. I actually did this in Jerusalem, and I locked up many of the saints in prison since I had received authority for that from the chief priest. When they were put to death, well, there's the, there's the verse right there I was looking for. When they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. So in other words, he 
testified in court that these people were blasphemers and needed to be put to death. So, and by the way, this is an, this is an off-the-topic question, but put to death, the Jews were not supposed to have authority over capital punishment. I think I read somewhere there was an exception for blasphemy. The Romans didn't really care if they put somebody to death for blasphemy. So here we go. Verse 11, And all the synagogues often tried to make them blaspheme by punishing them. I even pursued them to foreign cities since I was greatly enraged at them. Paul was sincere. I mean, he wasn't just, he didn't have a personal animosity against Christians. He was defending Yahweh. He was defending the Jewish religion. Oh, there is nothing worse than someone who thinks he's right religiously, but he's wrong. They will do the worst persecution in the world. And that includes sects of Christians or schools of Christians who think that other Christians have a different theology from theirs and they need to be put down. And that's why anybody who deals with theology has got to be very, very, very careful of how you deal with theological opponents. They are your brothers. I will even say that about John MacArthur. Out of whose mouth 99% of the time error comes, or maybe 98, maybe I'm exaggerating, but almost every time he opens his mouth, I get hives. I try to avoid any YouTube video. When I listen to fellow Christians talk about, oh, John MacArthur said this, I just shut my ears, but he's still my brother, and I do not persecute him. I will not, of course, I don't have the power to, but even if I did, I wouldn't do it. You don't persecute fellow Christians. You might leave them alone. You might raise up a standard of truth against them. You might expose their teaching as, as, as erroneous, but you don't persecute fellow believers. Well, now, Paul was not only persecuting them, he was judicially murdering people who didn't agree with him theologically. That's how much hatred, that's how much opposition Jesus brought out in the hearts of his fellow Jews. Galatians 1, 13-14, this is Paul speaking. For you have heard about my former way of life in Judaism. I persecuted God's church to an extreme degree and tried to destroy it. I advanced, well, that's enough, enough of that. Verse 13 is enough. I persecuted God's church to an extreme degree and tried to destroy it. Well, see, that fulfilled exactly what Jesus had told the original 12 apostles before Paul was converted. He said, anyone who kills you will think he is offering service to God. And that's exactly what Paul thought. He thought he was offering service to God. He was advanced in all the traditions of the Jews, extremely zealous for the traditions of his ancestors. Regarding the righteousness that is in the law, blameless, as he says in Philippians 3.6. Okay, so Jesus' words came to truth. Now, how would they try to kill these apostles? How would they try to kill them? Well, here's some options. They could be dragged before the courts and convicted of capital crimes. John Gill denies that, and I don't see why he does deny that. Deny that. Isn't that what Paul was doing prior to his conversion? He was dragging them before courts, accusing them of capital crimes, and he says, I voted to kill them. Another option is that zealots for Judaism would directly kill Christians. I don't know if that's it, because I don't know if there's any historical evidence of that. I haven't heard of it. There is. So it doesn't matter. However it was accomplished, there were going to be people killing the apostles. And Jesus said, you've got to get ready for that. You've got to be ready to carry your cross, even unto death. John 16, 3. They will do these things because they haven't known the Father or me. Of course, if they knew the Father or Jesus, they wouldn't be wanting to kill Christians, obviously. Now, notice how Jesus, once again, intimately ties himself up with the Father. The Father or me doesn't make any difference because we're both God. Not to know Christ is to be ignorant of the Father. Jesus said, the one who sent me, they love, you love me, you love the Father. If you hate the, me, you will hate the Father, he said. 
The Father does works in the world, I do works in the world. The Father judges, I judge. That's in John. Oh, it's all through the book of John. Over and over and over again, Jesus identifies himself with the Father, and as a result, the Jews, who were not dumb, they knew exactly what he was doing, and they tried to kill him for blasphemy. John 16, 4. I say that because a lot of people say, well, you know, he's just a good teacher. No, he wasn't. He was the Son of God, and he was claiming to be the Son of God without equivocation, without prevarication, openly, bluntly, frankly, directly. I am God. Now, you can imagine anybody else doing that. No other religious leader has ever come down and said, I am God. Jesus did it and got away with it because he, he was God. That's what distinguishes him from Buddha, who was a sinner, Muhammad, who was a, a, openly a sinner, and so was, gosh, I hope no radical Muslim listens to this this audio. I might have said something blasphemous against Islam, but it's true. I mean, you read his, uh, Muhammad's history, his biography, he didn't claim to be God. He was a prophet. Likewise, Buddha didn't claim to be God. He obviously had a sinful life. He was trying to escape that sinful life when he became a Buddhist. So we could go on and on and on about that. Jesus is the only religious figure who claimed that he himself was God. John 16:4. But I have told you these things so that when their time comes, you may remember I told them to you. Their time meaning the times of the persecution or the, or the coming of the Holy Spirit, those two things. I didn't tell you these things from the beginning because I was with you. Now, the beginning is, of course, when Jesus first called them as disciples. He didn't tell them things. I've told you these things, but I didn't tell you them from the beginning. What things? Again, let's break that down. The things, the two things, the coming persecution, number one, and number two, the coming of the Holy Spirit. At least those are two optional things that Jesus could have been referring to. Upon further reflection, I don't think he's referring to persecution because he had told them things about persecution that had happened before. Luke 6:22. You are blessed when people hate you, when they exclude you, insult you, and slander your name as evil because of the Son of Man. Not to mention the fact you've got to bear your cross. When they, I'm going to go down to Jerusalem, and they're going to kill me, and, and if they hated the master, they're going to hate the disciple. I mean, he told them that stuff about that, so I don't really think that that's what it's referring to here is things about persecution, but, he's, but about the Holy Spirit. He never told them about the Holy Spirit before. I have told you these things, but I didn't tell you these things from the beginning because I was with you. And he says, because I was with you, I didn't tell you about these things. He didn't really tell them, tell them about them directly because he didn't need to. The Holy Spirit, he was, he was there. What, did you, what do you need the Holy Spirit for? The third person of the Trinity when you got the second person of the Trinity right there talking to you and teaching you. So that's why I didn't tell him those things. John 16, verse 5. But now I am going away to him who sent me, and not one of you asked me, where are you going? Now, Peter at, actually had asked such a question. This is at the Lord's Supper, the Last Supper, in John 13, verse 36. Lord, Simon Peter said to him, where are you going? Jesus answered, where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow later. So if Peter had already asked the question, why did Jesus say, not one of you asked me, where are you going? Well, there are several options to answer that. I'm going to give you the first option that I think is correct, is that Peter, and Thomas, by the way, also asked the same question in a, at a different place. But Peter's and Thomas's questions were before the Lord's Supper, and I think Jesus is referring to him right now. He just finished talking about going away at the Lord's Supper, and nobody's mentioned it since then. In fact, right when Peter mentioned it, he immediately went around, uh, after Peter asked the question at the Lord's Supper, he immediately went into a discourse, I'm not going to deny you, I'm not going to deny you. He didn't, mention, he didn't worry about where Jesus was going. He was focused on not denying Jesus. Now, that's so... 
That's how I reconcile it. Jesus was talking about right then. He wasn't talking about previously at the Lord's Supper when Peter and Thomas asked the questions. All right, so here, let me give you some other options that have been given to that question. Here's the NIV Study Bible. Peter had quickly turned his attention to another subject when he had asked the question at the Lord's Supper. His concern was what was going to happen to himself and the other disciples. In other words, I'm not going to deny you three times. I'm going to follow you to the death. And he didn't show any concern for where Jesus was going. He didn't really understand. You know, he just didn't care about it. So second option, Peter's meaning was what part of the country are you going to? He had no notion of Jesus going out of the world. So when, G when Peter asked that question at the Lord's Supper, where are you going? He was referring to where in Israel are you going? He wasn't referring to are you going to heaven or not? And of course, that's what Jesus wants to focus on right now, the fact that he's going to heaven. And that means that Peter didn't understand the promise of many rooms in the Father's mansion. John 14, 2, In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If not, I would have told you I'm going to prepare a place for you. Peter could have taken that quite literally, quite carnally, and said, Oh, Jesus is going to go somewhere out here in Israel and make a mansion for me. Well, I don't know about that. I mean, he just, Peter really would have to be spiritually obtuse to believe that, but that was John Gill's solution. Jameson Fawcett and Brown, the third option is that Peter and Thomas's questions were before the Lord's Supper, and Jesus is talking now. He's not talking about the Lord's Supper. So he's saying, why aren't you guys now asking me about where I'm going? That's my preferred solution. And then the fourth option is Jesus wanted more intelligent and eager inquiry on the subject of where he was going. So he's saying, you're not asking me enough questions. You've already asked me nominally at the Lord's Supper, but now you're not asking me more deeply. Where am I going? This is Jameson Fawcett and Brown's solution. John 16, verses 6 through 7. Yet, because I have spoken these things to you, far sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I am telling you the truth. It is for your benefit that I go away. Because if I don't go away, the counselor will not come to you. If I go, I will send him to you. Now, what things again? He keeps talking. Jesus keeps talking about these things I've spoken. Again, the, uh, the things are basically talking about his departure to heaven, being persecuted by the Jews, and the Holy Spirit being sent to the world, to the, to the apostles. He says, I am going to send the counselor to you. Oh, excuse me, he doesn't say that. He says, uh, if I don't go away, the counselor will not come to you. And John 14, verse 26, at the Lord's Supper, he was more explicit. He said, I will send the counselor to you. But the counselor, the Holy Spirit, the Father will send him in my name. Well, actually, it says the Father will send the Holy Spirit to you in Jesus' name. And this counselor will teach you all things and remind you of everything I've told you. So basically Jesus is saying, look, you, you're sorrowful because I'm leaving, but don't worry about it. It's going to be okay because I've got the counselor coming to you. The Holy Spirit's going to come to you and he's going to give you everything you need. So don't worry about it. the persecution that's coming or my absence during that persecution. Don't worry. Now notice that Jesus is going away, redounds to the disciples' benefit, an even better situation than when he was with them personally, because now the Holy Spirit can be in any Christian's heart, and the word can spread all over the world, and the Christian church can get started, but those 12 disciples with Jesus were not going to be able to evangelize the world. This is another example of Romans 8:28, how God takes all the bad things for those who love him and turn them into and turn those and turns those bad things into good things. John 16, verse 8, when he, the Holy Spirit, the Counselor, comes, he will convict the world about sin, righteousness, and judgment. Now, convict has a marginal reading in the NIV, expose the guilt of the world. So you could read it this way, when he comes, he will expose the guilt of the world. That's 
means pretty much the same thing as convict the world. Now, the NIV Study Bible makes this comment. Normally, the New Testament speaks of the Holy Spirit's work in believers. But now here, John is speaking of the Holy Spirit's work in the world. What does the Holy Spirit do in the world? Now, it says, when he comes, that's, of course, referring to Pentecost. Now, when he says, the Holy Spirit will convict the world, Adam Clark says, that's the Jewish world first, then, then the Gentile world. And, of course, you need to add, this is refers to those in the world who believe in Jesus, because not everybody, if you don't believe in Jesus, you're not going to be convicted of sin, righteousness, and judgment. This is talking about what the Holy Spirit does for believers. He works on non-believers and turns them into believers. Now, what does this mean? He will convict the world about sin, righteousness, and judgment. Well, Jesus explains that in the next three verses. So let's go to John 16, 9 through 11. About sin, because they do not believe in me. Well, let's stop right there. The Holy Spirit will convict the world about sin. Why? Because they do not believe in me. Now, what does that refer to? Well, I think, according as Adam Clark says, that Jesus is referring to the fact that multitudes of sinners were actually convicted of their sin at Pentecost. Acts 2.37, when they heard this, they came under deep conviction, deep conviction, and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what must we do? So there the Holy Spirit convicted of sin, uh, convicted of the sin of unbelief. So Jesus is saying, look, they don't believe in me. Well, the Holy Spirit's going to con convict them of the sin of not believing in me. He was specifically referring to Pentecost. Now, you can make an application, of course, in general, that J the Holy Spirit convicts people of sin anywhere in the world because they cannot see themselves as sinners, as the NIV Study Bible says. That's a more general application, but I believe the original uh, interpretation, if you will, is he's re Jesus is referring to unbelieving Jews who didn't believe in him, but they're going to be convicted when the Holy Spirit comes upon them at Pentecost. Adam Clark believes that, believes that this verse is restricted to the sin of the Jews in rejecting the Messiah. He doesn't take it generally, as the NIV Study Bible tends to take it. Now, verse 10 says, Jesus continues, about righteousness. He's referring to the fact that when the Holy Spirit, Spirit comes, he will convict the world about righteousness. What righteousness is he talking about? Well, Adam Clark and John Gill say that Jesus is referring to the personal righteousness of Christ. He will convict the world that I am righteous. In other words, I am right. Why? Because the Jews had spent all of their time that Jesus was with them slandering him. They called him a blasphemer, said he was full of the devil, a seditionist, as John Gill says. Adam Clark says they called him an imposter, a magician, a seducer, a destroyer of the law. But then when the Holy Spirit came at Pentecost, Peter convicted them all of their horrible sin and pointed out that Jesus Christ was righteous. Peter says this in Acts 2, 22-23, Men of Israel, listen to these words. This Jesus, the Nazarene, was a man pointed out to you by God with miracles, wonders, and signs that God did among you through him, just as you, you yourselves know. Though he was delivered up according to God's predetermined plan and foreknowledge, you use lawless people to nail him to a cross and kill him. You, they use the Romans to kill Jesus. And so Peter says, hey, look around you, folks. People are staggering around under the Holy Spirit at 9 o'clock in the morning as if they were drunk. People are speaking in languages they never learned, proclaiming the gospel of Christ. You should know now. You should be convicted of the righteousness of the Jesus that you murdered. So verse 10 in John 16 would read like this. The Holy Spirit will come to the world to convict the world about the righteousness of Jesus, that he was not a slanderer, a blasphemer, a liar, a deceiver, but that he was truly the Son of God. In other words, we're going to the Holy Spirit's going to convict the world that Jesus was right and everybody else was wrong. Let's, uh, uh, let's take the last part of verse 10. The Holy Spirit will convict the world about righteousness because I'm going to the Father and you will no longer see me. In other words, 
because I'm going to the Father, that means the Holy Spirit has come into the world. And that's how the, the Holy Spirit is going to convict these Jews who killed Jesus that they were wrong about it. I, the Holy, I'm going to the Father, the Holy Spirit's coming down here. Because I'm going to the Father and you no longer see me, and then the implied result of that because is, therefore, the implied therefore is, therefore the Holy Spirit's going to come and convict the non-believing Jews about my righteousness. Now, the NIV study Bible points out that even though it's the Holy Spirit is convicting particularly about the righteousness of, of Jesus, it could also refer to the righteousness in general. It convict the, the typical non-believer about what's right and what's wrong, what's just and what's unjust, that Jesus is God and that those who deny his divinity are unrighteous. And, of course, I believe that that's true, and so you can make an application there, too, but I don't believe that that's what Jesus was directly talking about. I think he was talking about his righteousness. He's going to be vindicated, in other words, when the Holy Spirit comes. Let's go to verse 11. I'm going to start with verse 10 here where he says the Holy Spirit, when he comes, he will convict the world about judgment, verse 11, and about judgment because the ruler of this world has been judged. Now, the easiest way to take this, because Jesus says, because the ruler of this world has been judged, is to say the judgment is referring to the judgment of Satan, the ruler of this world. He got judged when he failed to keep Jesus on the cross dead, and when Jesus rose again from the dead, that was the end of, Jesus, of the devil's ministry of trying to kill the Son of God. And so the Holy Spirit will convict people that, hey, the devil has been judged. He tried to kill Jesus and failed, and so everybody will know that the devil has been judged. That's what the Holy Spirit comes to convict when it about when 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 the conviction is about judgment some people have some other views on that here's john gill the holy spirit will convict people of the truth that christ has all power in heaven and earth to judge in other words because jesus judged excuse me because well because jesus judged the devil by beating him on the cross the Holy Spirit will take that fact and then will then convict everybody on earth that Christ has the power to do that. He has the power to judge even the devil. Okay, that's a little indirect, but that's okay. John Gill's view. Here's Adam Clark's view. The Holy Spirit will convict the Jews of the false judgment they had in condemning Jesus. And again, I'm, I'm going to elaborate on Clark a little bit, try to defend him a little bit to take care of this context here because the verse directly says it's because the rule of the world has been judged. That's how the Holy Spirit convicts about judgment. But it could be because Jesus has beaten the ruler of this world, beaten the devil by judging his, by overcoming his attempt to kill the Son of God, because Jesus has done that, then therefore the Holy Spirit will take that fact and, the, and then convict the Jews of the false judgment they had in condemning Jesus. Convict the world of judgment. Well, that's roundabout. It seems to me the verse very plainly says, I will convict the Holy Spirit will convict the world about judgment because the ruler of this world has been judged. That's the direct statement, so I'm going to stick with that. We see that the devil's been judged, and so we're convicted that Jesus is true, he's real, he's powerful, he's the Son of God. All right, so let's summarize that. The Holy Spirit convicts the world about righteousness, and Jesus is right, he's true, he's just, therefore we can believe in him. The Holy Spirit convicts the world about judgment because... Jesus has judged the devil by defeating him on the cross and living when the devil was trying to kill him. And he convicts the world about sin. Convicts the world that somebody sinned by putting Jesus on the cross and, and, and not believing in him. And then we can make our applications from there as the case may be. 
Now, one more point before we leave these three verses. The Holy Spirit convicts the world about judgment because the ruler of this world has been judged. Judged where? Which judgment? The final judgment? Well, has been judged at the final judgment? Ah, Jameson Fawson Brown denies that option. Could be has been judged refers to the judgment over the devil during Jesus' ministry, which I think makes a lot more sense. John 12, 31, now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. Now that puts it in the future, but I think that once Jesus was there and started casting out demons, that was the beginning of the end for the devil and being defeated on the cross was just another humongous defeat. Of course, he's still trying to do his deal today, but he's in a retreating strategic position as the gospel of Christ spreads across the world. John 16, verse 12. I still have many things to tell you, but you can't bear them now. Well, he's, he says, I, I like this. You can't bear them now. It's like, what of all the stuff he's just told them? I'm going to die. I'm going to get killed. You're going to get persecuted. But I got some worse stuff for you, you can't handle. Wow. I don't know if I could have handled what had just been told to, to, to the disciples. Here's some examples of the things they could not understand, that they couldn't bear, that Jesus couldn't tell them about. The rejection of the Jews, this is according to Gill and Clark. The calling of the Gentiles, according to Gill and Clark. The abrogation of the Mosaic economy, according to John Gill. The establishment of the church, according to John Gill. Yeah, there was a lot of stuff they didn't know. Holy Spirit had to teach them about all that. That was coming later. That was coming after Pentecost. Now, we might contrast this verse with a previous verse on the same discourse on the road to Gethsemane, John 15, 15. I do not call you slaves anymore because a slave doesn't know what his master is doing. I've called you friends because I've made known to you everything I've heard from the Father. Well, there Jesus says, I've made known to you everything. And now in John 16, he says, I got, I got things I can't tell you now because you can't bear them. How do you reconcile that? Well, it's because he's given them everything that they need to know that he's heard from the Father at that time. And he's given them quite a lot, but there was still a lot more to go. When Jesus says, I have made known to you everything I've heard from the Father in John 15, 15, obviously everything can't mean everything that God knows, because then the disciples would have as much knowledge as God, which means they would be omniscient, which is absurd. So there's an implied condition there that rational people will, t will put there. I've made known to you everything that you need to know about spiritual life at this point in your life. And so he's revealed a little bit more to them at, the, at this last discourse on the road to Gethsemane. And even then, he's not going to tell them everything because the Holy Spirit's got to tell them some stuff after Pentecost. There's no point in trying to know all the future from the beginning. You've got to take it one step at a time and learn as you go through life. But at any rate, it seems to me it's a miracle they could bear what he'd already told them. You can't bear these things now. I can't believe they could bear the stuff that he had told them. You're gonna, I'm going to die, and you're going to get persecuted. John 16:13. when the spirit of truth comes, he's again referring to the Holy Spirit coming to convict the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. When the Holy Spirit comes, he will guide you into all the truth, for he will not speak on his own, but he will speak whatever he hears. He will also declare to you what is to come. Whatever he hears, that means whatever he hears from the Father, or maybe from the Son. The NIV Study Bible says we don't know the Holy Spirit hears from the Father or the Son, but it doesn't matter given the close relationship between the three sons, uh, three persons, excuse me. So the Holy Spirit will speak whatever he hears from God the Father and Jesus the Son. He's going to speak it out to the apostles. He's the Spirit of Truth. That phrase is used several times. Uh, here's two other times in two previous chapters. John 14:17. in the same discourse, he, he mentions this a lot. 
John 14, 17, He is the Spirit of truth. The world is unable to receive Him because it doesn't see Him or know Him. But you do know Him because He remains with you and will be in you. The Spirit of truth will be in you. John 15, 26, When the Counselor comes, the one I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, He will testify about me. So the Spirit of truth hears from the Father, hears from the Son, tells you everything that you need to know about Jesus. And He's coming and He's going to live in you. He remains with you and will be in you. John 14, 17. That's the good news of truth. What is the spirit of truth? It could mean the spirit is characterized by truth, the spirit of truth, the spirit who is truth, or it could be the spirit who gives truth. I tend to favor the latter. It's the spirit who gives truth because he will tell you everything that he knows from God the Father and God the Son. So the spirit of truth means he's going to reveal truth to you. He is true, true, but he will, he will reveal truth to you also. He will reveal to the apostles what is to come. The NIV Study Bible says that's probably the Christian way preserved in the apostolic writings. Jameson Fawcett and Brown say it says it probably refers to the kingdom of God. In other words, the church. What is to come? He will declare to you about the matters of the church, which is which are to come. Verse 14. He will glorify me because he will take from what is mine and declare it to you. And you notice the Holy Spirit does not draw attention to himself. He takes from what is Jesus's and declares it to you. doesn't say it directly comes from the Holy Spirit. He, the Holy Spirit promotes the glory of Christ. I, w I just read an article by Matt Slick of CARM, Christian Apologetics Resource Ministries, I think that stands for. Excellent website to investigate theological difficulties in a nutshell. And he says, oh, you can pray to the Holy Spirit. All three are God. All three are divine. You know, they're all three God. So why not pray to the Holy Spirit? So I think, you know, we've got to be careful here. You normally pray to Jesus, but if you pray to the Holy Spirit, I've heard people pray to the Holy Spirit, and it made my skin cross. There's something wrong about this. And Matt Slick said, no, there's nothing wrong about it, and I think he's right. But generally, the Holy Spirit reveals Jesus to us. He'll take from what is mine, what is Jesus's, and declare it to you. And the what is mine refers to the teachings of Jesus, the doctrines of Jesus, the words of Jesus. John 16, verse 15, everything the Father has is mine. This is why I told you that he takes from what is mine, and I will declare it to you. So now Jesus is going from now saying the Holy Spirit's going to take from me and give to you. And he then tells them in verse 15, everything the Father has is mine. So it goes from the Father, everything the Father has is mine, is Jesus's, and then everything that Jesus is belongs to you. And again, the everything means everything that you need to know as a human being to walk a righteous life. It does not mean that you have all the knowledge of God, because then you would be omniscient. Notice how closely the three persons are closely related. Everything the Father has is the Son's. And that is why I told you that He, the Holy Spirit, takes from what is the Son's and will declare it to you. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, right there in one verse. I do not understand how Unitarians and Oneness Pentecostals and people who deny the Trinity can get away from the obvious teaching of the Trinity. It's obvious as the... It might be hard to understand, but... The Trinity is as obvious as the nose on your face if you believe the Scripture as the revealed Word of God. Here's another Scripture that teaches a similar idea. John 17:10. This is the high priestly prayer. This is still on that in the same discourse later on. Everything I have is yours, and everything you have is mine. I have been glorified in them. This is Jesus speaking to God. He says, "Everything I have is yours, the Father, and everything you, the Father, have is mine, the Son. And I have been glorified in them." So, glorified. So. There's the connection between God the Father and God the Son. Their teachings, their knowledge, their what they know belongs to both of them and the Holy Spirit. And that's the access we have because the Holy Spirit is in us. So if you're 
bedeviled and flummoxed about the situation that you find yourself in, just remember, all the knowledge of God is in you. You might want to ask that it be revealed to you. Now, when he says, everything the Father has is mine, this verse could not have been said without blasphemy had Jesus not been equal to God. If an ordinary person had said that, if I got up in the middle of a square and said, everything God the Father has is is Dan Trotter's, well, I'd be stoned for blasphemy, and rightly so. Well, here's some of the things, not just knowledge, but here's some of the other things that belong to God. Love, joy, peace, omniscience, grace, forgiveness, power, and you can go on and on with the characteristics of God. All the characteristics of God, all the attributes of God, belong to the Son. All the attributes of the Father belong to the Son. And you can say the same thing about the Holy Spirit, for that matter. John 16:16, 16, 16, a little while and you will no longer see me. Again, a little while and you will, you will see me. All right, the first little while, a little while and you will no longer see me. This is obvious. It means that in just a few hours, I'm going to be crucified and put in a tomb. You're not going to be able to see me in the tomb. Jesus only had a few hours to live. This is Thursday night, early Friday morning. He was killed Friday, Friday after Friday, probably. Well, that's debatable, but I think it's about 9 o'clock Friday. They nailed him on a cross and he died at 12 or so. So you're talking about the next day, maybe even the same day if we'd gotten past midnight. Well, I'm not sure they did get past midnight. So we're talking about a little while, not long. You will no longer see me because you can't see somebody that's dead. That's what it's referring to. But now the next phrase, again a little while, and you will see me. What's he referring to here? Well, I think he's referring to the his post-resurrection appearances which occurred before the ascension, 40 days after the resurrection. So he's trying to encourage him. Hey, guys. I, I, I'm going to be. I'm going to disappear for three days. You won't be able to see me. But hey, after that, you're going to get to see me. You'll see me in the flesh. Trying to encourage them. Now let's look at some options. I've got uh, about five options as to what this second little while is. Again, in a little while, and you will see me. I told you what I think it is. Post-resurrection appearances. That's uh, John Gill's uh, answer, and I think he's right. But let's look at some other options. Here's option number one. This refers to before the resurrection. You will see me before the resurrection. Now, this is weird. I, the NIV Study Bible prefers that. John Gill says it's an option, and Jameson Fawcett and Brown says they act, that is the correct option. I don't understand that. How are they going to see Jesus before the resurrection? Jesus is going to be in the grave. So I'm not really sure what they mean by that. It could mean you will see me in a little while at Pentecost. And now then, see would not have to be literal. It have to would mean, it have to mean you will see the effects of my coming. Or it could mean that you will see me in the sense of you will understand me when I come at Pentecost. Well, that's possible. It's plausible, but I don't think it's, that's what Jesus meant, in my humble opinion. Could be referring to the coming in judgment at 8070. That's Adam Clark's Solution, he says again in a little while, in 8070, one generation, you will see me when I come and wipe out Israel. Well, generally Jesus talked about seeing, that kind of seeing was talking about the non-believing Jews would see Jesus come in judgment, not talking to the disciples. Oh, he could be that. I mean, I'm an Orthodox preterist. I believe in 8070 is referring to the Olivet Discourse, but I, but I don't think Adam Clark's right here. I, I, even though my prejudices, prejudices might lead me that way. I don't think that's what Jesus is talking about. I think he's saying, hey, I'm encouraging you guys because I'm going to see you after I resurrect. And I'm going to see you for 40 days. Well, some people say it's the second coming of Christ. In a little while, you will see me. At the second coming of Christ, I do not know how a little while refers to 2,000 plus years. That's what Adam Clark points out, and I agree with him totally. But Adam Clark says this is one way you might reconcile that. And I'll mention this because people who don't like Orthodox preterism, they constantly quote this verse 
This is Psalm 90, verse 4. For in your sight, a thousand years are like yesterday that passes by like a few hours of the night. See there? It's a little while, but it's 2,000 years plus later. Well, let me just say this is nonsense. I cannot tell you how many times I've heard people quote that verse. It says, for in your sight, in God's sight, on God's timetable, a few years are like a thousand years. But we're not operating on God's timetable. We are operating on our timetable, and in our sight, 2,000 years ain't a little while. Jesus is talking to disciples. He says, in a little while you will see me. What are they going to think? They're going to be thinking human terms, not God terms. They're going to be thinking, oh, in a little while, that's what it means. It means a little while. That's the most straightforward, literal way you can take that phrase, a little while. I say literal because it's a lot of dispensationalists who harp on literalism who get to this phrase a little while, and all of a sudden it ain't literal anymore. They use their literalism in a special pleading sort of way. Ladies and gentlemen, that ends the discussion of John 16, 1 through 16. We'll take it up right in the middle of this when the disciples respond to this. What do you mean a little while? We're not going to see you. We'll, take, we'll start with that, and as we continue with this di final discourse on the road to Gethsemane, we'll finish the whole rest of the chapter. John 16, 17 through 33. I hope you tune in to listen to that one, and I hope you enjoyed this audio.